Welcome to the Purdue Basketball Podcast. I'm Elliot Bloom, joined by the voice of the Boilermakers, the Hall of Famer, Larry Clisby. Episode 56 here on the podcast. And uh, as we tape this uh, podcast, it's during our off-season, the summer months. And um, one of the things we wanted to try to do as we continue to expand uh, the podcast and our guest is to reach out across campus and talk to some people that um, most of our past podcasts have been people in the athletic department and, and former players and coaches. And so in an effort to try to uh, broaden our horizons, so to speak, uh, we want to welcome in um, distinguished professor of history here at Purdue, Randy Roberts, uh, joins us on the podcast. And uh, Professor Roberts, thanks for taking time to join us. No problem, Elliot. It's nice to talk to you and meet you. And of course, the, the, the original Larry Legend, uh, it's great to talk with him god i we go a long time i remember larry talking with you we had a great talk one time i think it was in penn state for a penn state game yeah yeah, yeah you entertained you entertained the forces at that at that table that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> you recall that conversation larry oh yeah but you know i have a i have a tendency to entertain sometimes and <laughs> not so much other times all depends well, all depends what the audience is right that, that that had been 25 years ago i bet i don't know how long ago it was yeah. a while though it was a while yeah i agree well randy i was i was reading some stuff on you and um a lot of stuff to get into but one of the reasons uh larry and i were very excited about this and i don't know if you've listened to our podcast in the past but we we try to get off uh kind of the what would be, I guess, considered a typical conversation. We try to get into some areas that may be a little bit different, and uh, we, we talk books a lot on this podcast. We talk history a lot. So uh, what better guest um, to have than you? And uh, I wanted to, before we kind of get into some of that stuff, I wanted to ask you um, kind of where you're from originally and kind of a little bit about your upbringing. I was born just a little bit outside of Pittsburgh, and my father was a, a politician. And so uh, when I was five, we, we moved to the state capital, which was just Harrisburg. We lived just on the other side of the river, Susquehanna River from Harrisburg. And so my father was involved in uh, politics in Pennsylvania, which was a wild story. Um, I, God, I've got so many stories about that. <laughs> and my, my, my father died when I, was, when I was only 12 in 1963. And so, you know, 12 year old, you don't really know exactly what's going on. But, uh, you know, I talked with my uncle a lot since then, and my uncle knew everything about my father. And, you know, when you're, if you were involved in democratic politicians, I mean, you were involved in, with labor unions a lot. And if you were involved with labor unions, you know what else you were involved with. Mm -hmm. And so there are a, a number of stories come out from that, that's for sure. But anyway, so I, I grew up in Pennsylvania and grew up in a little town called Camp Hill. It's just a great town to grow up in. That's outstanding. So now uh, talk about um, at what age, um, I mean, did you – did you have a notion early on? I always ask this of basketball players that we have on, like at what age did you pick up the game or things like that? But at what age did you um, notice you started to maybe gravitate towards history and writing or anything like that? 
Well, my, you know, when I was in high school, I think I would have been voted the most likely to end up in prison. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you know not, the, not an institution like, like uh, Purdue, uh, a completely different institution. And, you know, I was interested. I was always interested in history. I really was always interested in history. It was one of the subjects that I was just fascinated about. Uh, but really, my main interest in, in high school was sports. You know, that's what I did. I, you know, that's a, I came from a family of three boys. We all played three sports. You know, we were all fairly successful at, at the high school level in sports, and I played some in college. And my younger brother was a very good football player, played for the best University of Kentucky football team they ever had when they went undefeated in the Southeast Conference back in the when would that have been the late 70s, I guess. Um, but so, you know, sports interest me. And, and it occurred to me as, you know, once I was in college, I became far more academically inclined and really buckled down and became serious about academics. And I was serious about history. And it, it, it occurred to me that, you know, people write about history and they write about politicians and they write about economics and they write about social development. But very few academic historians wrote about sports. Mm. And sports were important to my life. And I know sports were important to other people's lives. And, you know, people would, with a Marxist inclination felt that, you know, workers go to factories and they're discussing Karl Marx and, and, uh, and, and his writings. And I knew, I knew the workers that I knew who went to factory, who went after factories when they went to bars. They didn't talk about Marx. They didn't talk about <laughs> class. They talked about sports. They talked about football. They talked about Penn State. They talked about, you know, uh, the Steelers. Uh, so... So I thought, well, I'm going to combine something I've always been interested in, sports and history, and write sports history. That's outstanding. That, that, well, and I've, I've read um, a few of your books, and we'll get into some of those. Um, so that kind of gets your initial appeal, and as you get through school, um, what, what's your decision-making point as school starts to near its end? What's going through your mind about you know, where your next stop might be? Well, you know, the academic field is, is, is difficult. You know, it's not like you say to yourself, you know, maybe I'll teach at Purdue or maybe <laughs> right. I'll teach at Wisconsin or, you know, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go up to Harvard. Maybe I'll take my talents to Harvard. It's, you know, it's not, you don't right. get those LeBron James uh, <laughs> decisions. Uh, it, it's just not that simple. I mean, you go where the job is, and you hope to get a good job, mm-hmm. and and you hope to work to the next job. You know, maybe a better job. So I started in uh, in Texas, really. Um, my first major jobs I taught at Sam Houston State University and the University of Texas, and then in 1988, um, I, I got a chance to come to Purdue, and which was was really great. I mean, I can remember I interviewed. Boy, I, I interviewed at a convention in 1988 in, uh, you know, in the spring. And that night, uh, I think I watched Troy Lewis, uh, you know, I, I, geez, you know, that great team that yeah. they just got with Everett Stevens and Todd Moore and Troy Lewis. Yeah. And I watched them lose in the NCAA tournament. And I thought, oh, geez, you know, because they had such a great chance that year. Right. So I came, I came to Purdue in the fall of 1988 then, right after uh, that, that that great run by those three fantastic Purdue players. Okay, that's a, yeah, that's a, well, we talk about the, that team quite a bit, and um, of course, one of Larry's favorite all-time players was Troy Lewis, and uh, that was a 
that was when basketball um, was really here, I guess. It's always been big at Purdue, obviously, but that team, I think, um, really kind of took Coach Katie to another level and uh, and increased his popularity. And, of course, you're, you you came to campus at a time when, um, obviously, basketball was at its peak. And, uh, and football was, I'm not sure, Larry, what was football doing in the late 80s? Not good. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. I think, let's see, that was, might have been right after Acres okay. uh, left. And, of course, and, you're you know, coming we, from Texas, so. I'm coming from Texas, and I'm saying to myself, wait a second. I saw I saw Acres at Texas take play, you know, fill in, take the role of uh, Darrell Royal and turn an absolutely spectacular football team at the University of Texas into kind of a mediocre, I hate to say this, but kind of a mediocre team. And so when I, when I came here, everybody told me, oh, man, our program's looking good. We've got Acres. Uh, we got Fred Acres. Fred Acres? Was it Fred Acres? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got Fred Acres, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if he got that great of a coach. It's, you know, he didn't do that fantastic of a job at Texas. And and the basketball team, now I, I was never here for those big three, for the Lewis and, and Everett Stevens teams, um, and I wish I had been. Uh, so it was, you know, it was kind of a depleted team. So it wasn't at, very, at the best, but, boy, they, you know, I started going to basketball games right away. And yeah. They always played hard. And then, you know, then we started getting people like Steve Scheffler, who I remember from the early 90s, and yep. Jimmy Oliver, and I remember from the early 90s. And, and, and I watched a guy like Scheffler, and I thought to myself, man, this is, this is some coach that can take a guy that's not the most talented player in the world and turn him into, you know, an All-American virtually. Right. I mean, it, 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 was, it was just great to see. Well, and that's one of the one – of the... Many things that people would say about Coach Katie has got so much out of uh, out of the the roster that he had year in and year out, and really that at that point in time the Big Ten was kind of in its in its heyday in terms of basketball and just uh, kind of must see TV every night with the legendary coaches in the league and uh, certainly a good time to be uh, to be coming to uh, Purdue. So. Um, so talk us through when you as a professor, obviously you um, you've got you know, your books and your research that you're doing, but you're also in the classroom. And uh, do you enjoy uh, your time with the students and in, in teaching? Oh, I love teaching. I mean, I'm still doing it. I mean, I still love it. And I've always taught, I, I did it in Texas and I've done it here. I, I usually teach the big classes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it used to be my classes would be five, you know, I teach up to 500 students. We, we don't offer that big of a class today. And I would teach a course, you know, history, general American, second half of American history course. And then I eventually developed a World War II course that became very popular and would have a lot of students. And, and it was great. I mean, you know, they're, they're a little bit performance courses and, you know, you get history. I mean, how can you make World War II boring? If, <laughs> right. if, if you can't, I mean, if you can't make World War II interesting, there's something wrong with you. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the great story of American history, of world history. I mean, if, if you're, when you're dealing with characters like Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and, and Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, I mean, and you're dealing with the Battle of the Bulge and the 
Normandy expedition and all that, Pearl Harbor. I mean, it's just a fantastic course to teach, and I love teaching it. So, no, teaching's, you know, I felt I was hired here to do two things, to publish books and to teach. And I took, I, I really took both of those things very seriously and, and, and tried mm-hmm. to excel in them. Does, does it amaze you how... Um, uh, how Purdue has evolved since you've been here, and especially over the last probably, I don't know, five five years or so, it just seems, um, you know, I've been a, I was, a, I'm a Purdue grad, and I've been on campus now for uh, pushing 20 years, and it just seems like the community campus itself, uh, buildings going up left and right, the enthusiasm here, um, it just seems like Purdue's kind of at an all-time high right now. Would you agree with that assessment? I've been here for what now over 30 years Mm -hmm. and Purdue has never been better and Purdue's been great since I've been here and and I've loved it I've loved the students and students you know the students are the same they want to be at Purdue and they love Purdue Uh, but in terms of growth in terms of morale in terms of national visibility I mean you know Mitch Daniels and it and it's it's Mitch Jan- Daniels. I mean, we've had some other really good presidents. I, you know, Chisky, I thought was a fantastic guy, uh, but you know, we're at a different level now. At least that's my assessment of the of the scene. Well, and obviously, yeah, and 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 celebrating our 150th anniversary. And speaking of that, and I know um, that you're probably not, uh, you're probably blushed a little bit, and but uh, we do want to mention that you were named 150th anniversary professor by the office of the provost, a very uh, distinguished award. Um, Ten faculty members me. got that award. Yeah, that so. was that was in this 149th year. <laughs> So <laughs> they, they gave it to me one year early, and I'm not blushing. I'm very proud of that. I give you a half an hour to stop talking like that. I don't know. <laughs> no, there's a there's a if you go when I was doing my research, Randy. There's a, a litany of awards you've gotten, and we won't we won't get into all that. But uh, but we but I did want to start uh, looking at some of the um, some of the books that you've written and things. And one thing that struck me is. Um, before we get into any specifics, it's just the amount of, um, I, I, I tend to think of, when I think of history professors, I think of professors that maybe concentrate on a specific uh, time period, um, event. You know, it, there, there seems to be professors that make their whole careers on the Vietnam War or World War II. But when I look at the stuff you've done, it spans a variety of, of different um, subjects times periods of history um, individuals there's a lot of of sports um, centric people but there's also um, you know actors and um, a lot of cultural issues race issues Um, is that typical or do you find yourself do you have kind of a maybe a broader spectrum than most typical history professors i would say it's not typical uh you know i i'm I'm interested in several things. You know, one of the things I'm interested in, I, I like biography or snippets of biography. And I'm interested in people from popular culture who have an impact on political culture. So it's kind of that intersection where popular culture and political culture meets. I'm not interested in an actor who's just an actor of an athlete who's just an athlete. But some of some actors, some athletes, Tell us something about our society, our politics at a time. You know, mm-hmm. some people, when you mention their name uh, and, and you get a reaction from somebody, you know, what do you think about Muhammad Ali? You know, 
that reaction can tell us a great deal about them because they're reacting not to the athlete, they're reacting to, to, to the political dimension. And so I've written books about you know, Muhammad Ali or Joe Lewis or John Wayne, a couple books on John Wayne, mm-hmm. or uh, Jack Johnson, a fighter of the first black heavyweight champion, or Jack Dempsey. And so I'm interested in that kind of intersection. And, and I'm interested in really writing books that I'd like to read. Uh, for example, I wrote a book called, uh, uh, it, it was a book on football in World War II, particularly West Point. It's called Team for America, and it's about West Point football in World War II. And I remember noticing one time when I was developing my World War II course, in 1944, West Point was the national champion in football. They were by far the best team in football. Mm-hmm. And I thought, my God, that, you know. That's a book I'd like to read. You know, there wasn't a book about it. I just saw this obscure fact, and I thought, you know, here's guys. You, you take a look at the, a football season. You know, it, it runs from the summer uh, until the end of the fall. And I'm thinking, okay, 1944. What's going on? We're dealing with between Normandy. You know, basically the, the team is playing between the Normandy invasion and the Battle of the Volge. I mm-hmm. mean, you know. So while American troops are moving across France towards Germany, uh, the, the Army football team is winning every game of the year and slaughtering teams and moving to the national championship. And so that, that connection between uh, sport and what the, sur- what the soldiers, what these cadets are doing, and they know that the next year, the year after, they may be fighting in that conflict, and they have friends who are commanding troops in that conflict. I thought, yeah, that'd be an interesting book. I'd, I'd like to, you know, kind of flesh this this obscure fact into a story. And so that's kind of the way, how I do it and, and, and why I wrote that book, because I would have liked to have read it. I was curious about that subject. Has there been any, when you, uh, when you research these books, has there been anything, um, like maybe you start down the path of like, okay, this is what it's going to be. Has anything ever come up in your research or maybe an interview that has caused you to like take a hard right and go in a completely different direction that, uh, does that happen often? Sometimes. Certainly interviews can can change can change a book a lot. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was doing the John Wayne book. Uh, John Wayne had a secretary, Mary St. John was her name, who really I never saw ever interviews with her. Nobody ever talked to her. Nobody what. And so you know, I found out. You know, this was a while after John Wayne died, and I didn't know if she was alive or not. But I checked it out and I found out that she was and where she lived. She lived at right outside of Kansas City. And so I contacted her and, and said, you know, can I can I come and interview with with interview you? And she said, you know, after saying, yeah, oh, I don't have anything to say. I don't know, you know, yeah. what I would have to say. I bet, let's yeah, just talk. I bet you do. Let's, let's, let's just talk. <laughs> yeah. And so so I went there with a tape recorder, of course, and had lost tape in case the interview lasted a uh, longer time than I thought it would last, and started asking questions. And she said, well, you know. Why don't, let me talk, and then you can ask some questions. Well, I went in there with a friend of mine, uh, who also was my co-author in the book, a guy named Jim Olson, and we, um, we, you know, we started right after breakfast. It was you know eight thirty or so, nine o'clock, and you know she started talking and kept talking. Lunch came, and 
we took her out to lunch and she kept talking and talking and <laughs> dinner came and she kept talking and we took her to dinner and yeah, anyway, the interview lasted 17 hours. Wow. Uh, as, as, as I recall that first interview and I think, I, I think I'm right. Cause it went well into the night. Um, and, and she was just an incredible fund of information and gave me material that I never expected. She was on every set with John Wayne. I mean, she worked for him, I think for 35 years and she went on every set with him and, you know, people like her on a set during a day while it's, the cameras are rolling and while they're setting up scenes, they don't have anything to do. And you have a lot of people standing around with nothing to do. You know, you have makeup people. Or, you know, every once in a while they go in and dab somebody's face or they have, you know, hair people. And right. every once in a while they straighten out some hair. But mostly they do nothing during the day. They've done their work in the morning with the makeup and the hair. And, and so the only thing they do stand around and gossip you know? and so <laughs> she had about 35 years of gossip you know who was yeah. sleeping with who who did what what it was just, <laughs> it was just one of the, you know, i won't i won't bore you with the details and some of the details really aren't very boring at all but uh it, it, it was an eye-opening experience but the interviews are are fantastic if i can get it you know i remember when i did a team for america one of the people i interviewed was a guy named robin olds and if you ever want to look to see what is should be central casting's view of mm -hmm. a fighter pilot, take mm -hmm. a look at Robin Olds. I mean, <laughs> this guy was the real deal. He was a, he became an ace after a several missions in World War II, and he was also an ace in the Vietnam War. Wow! He became the commandant of the Air Force Academy. He rose to the ranks of general, and I mean, he could chew through barbed wire. Uh, and, and I remember him telling, you know, talking about D-Day and, you know, he was flying a fighter plane on D-Day and, and, and talking about flying from England across the channel and looking down and seeing part of that eight is that 6,000 craft our, our, uh, fleet that was 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 preparing for d-day and going across the channel and thinking to himself he didn't know you know this is d-day this is a real deal he just had an assignment but when he looked down at the channel and saw all those ships he, he realized oh man this is big and and he he, he went down and he, he, his, his job was to keep the lufafa from strafing the beaches and so he flew and there was basically no lufafa and, and at Normandy, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Germans didn't have anything up. So he's going back and forth, and he's told, he's buzzing back and forth at about 500 feet, and he's told, you know, you only shoot at enemy planes. And he's seen people being, units, American units being destroyed, and he could have done something, but he can't fire. You know, he's under orders, and he was just pissed off. Wow. Okay, so imagine him. He's got a bird's eye view of what's happening in Normandy. His best friend from West Point, they were both West Pointers, was a guy named Henry Romeric. And Romeric was an engineer, graduated high. They're both football players, and that's how they became part of my story. Uh, as a matter of fact, Robin Olds was an All-American football player. And Romeric was an engineer, bright guy, graduated high in the academy, and, you know, you get your choice of assignments and he chooses engineering your choice of uh, branch and he branches engineering and he's in a boat landing they don't know you know here's best friends one's in, up in the air and the other's landing on the beaches and Romeric's in one of those boats the landing crafts that when the hatch drops German machine guns just starts blowing people away Wow. Skulls flying, bloods flying. He's pour, trying to push his way out. He finally gets 
jumps in what and starts to jump into the surf and he's hit immediately boom into the chest and he starts to sink in the water and you know he's he he's going to die uh you know and he's not afraid he said he's probably in shock and and he saw the glint on his west point ring and he said god damn it i'm not dying not today not here and he struggles to the surf and and he starts going down again and then a corpsman grabs him and pulls him in, onto the beach into a place where there's a little cover uh, in a, a seawall um, and says, look, I'll be back to you. And so Corman goes off and gets killed. And, and Corman gave him some sulfa pills. Sulfa pills was the fight infection. That's, you know, what yeah. they used at that time. Yeah. And told him something like, you know, take one of these every hour for the next 24 hours. And, and Romeric's attitude was, God, I'm not going to be alive for 24 hours. So he took all the things. <laughs> and, 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 and he takes all the pills in, the, in an attempt to, to fight off uh, infection. And he just sits there and he's watching people coming up the beach, you know, landing, uh, you know, getting killed, fighting their way up the beach. And he's there for the next 27 hours, wow. you know, with nothing. To, and he said the worst was at night. Yeah, I interviewed both of these guys at different times. The worst was at night when you know people would soldiers would light a match and they had the americans had taken the beach but there were still german snipers and you know the snipers were just looking for that little mat that fled, that light and then boom ping and you know they would shoot and and you know he was afraid he was going to be killed at night after surviving the day and then finally the next day well, his commanding officer sees him and says, are you still alive and they ship him back to england and he survives but you know wow. here we have you know, this, this story about football led me into hearing about a bird's eye view of the Normandy landings and a worm's eye view of the Normandy landings. And I don't know how I got off on that story. And I'm sorry I went on no, too long. No, I'm glad you did. Boring you. No, we're glad you did. We love that kind of stuff. That's no, eating bores. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, so one question I have, because um, I, I don't know why, I just think that this might be uh, – it. it I think I would probably deal with it. Do you have you ever gone into a book, um, and maybe it's somebody that you had an admiration for, and then as you dig deeper, maybe you uncover some things that are not as uh, uh, don't hold them in the same light that you thought they were going into it, and maybe kind of find out things about your heroes that's very disappointing or anything. Have you ever encountered anything like that? Yes. Um, and how do you deal with it? Well, I, I, I like to think that we're human. Right. Okay. There's no such thing as perfect people. Okay. You, 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 you look at a person's life hard enough, you're going to find, I mean, you're going to find that they're probably not a saint. Right. Okay? And the people that I look at, actors and athletes and, uh, and, and, and soldiers, uh, you know, they're not saints, okay? Yeah, but, yeah. but they still can be great people, um, and and I can still admire them. For example, John Wayne. Okay, I, I, I you know, I, I went into John. I didn't start to write a book, and that's probably the longest book I wrote. And I didn't start to write that because, oh man, I love John Wayne. I love John Wayne pictures. I wrote it because I thought said, you know, I'd like to do a book on a Hollywood personality, and I want a Hollywood personality who's had a long career. Okay, who's worked at different studios and made big films, but yet 
I don't want just an actor. I want somebody that was politically engaged, that that you know stands stood for something politically, and and, and was on the firing line, uh, you know, either from the right or the left. And, and you know, and, and and I want somebody that did good film. So I'm I'm looking for certain types of connections. And obviously, the person jumped out is John Wayne. Here's a guy with a 50 year career, mm-hmm. you know, politically active in the in the Cold War. Uh, made great pictures, blah blah. He fit all the categories. So I, you know, I started studying him and watching his films, and it really grew to kind of admire the films and the quality of the of John Wayne as an actor. Because you know, I come from, you know, in college, you know, John Wayne was an ath an athema to many Ameri- you know, college students at that time. Um, but yet, then when I'm studying John Wayne and I'm growing to like the guy and I'm talking to people that knew John Wayne and said he was just a fantastic person and I've got all these great stories and how John Wayne was, you know, the things he did for people that nobody knew about it. I mean, just, I've got a ton of stories on that. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, it's, it's amazing. But then I looked at his World War II career and here's a guy who became famous in World War II, but he never enlisted. He wasn't drafted. He was granted deferments. If you if you were worked in Hollywood, Hollywood was considered a you know you could get an exemption. Like if you were a farmer or worked in a steel mill, you could, you know it was a yeah. it was a, an industry that could be exempted. And John Wayne had a whole series of exemptions. And when we think of him, we right. identify him with you know right. John Wayne, the soldiers, the sand of Iwo Jima. Yeah. He became. Because he was in Hollywood and all the other leading men, most of the other leading men were fighting in the war or at least had enlisted. You know, you think of Jimmy Stewart or or, or uh, Henry Fonda or Clark Gable or Tyrone Power. All, you know, all these guys are in the service, so they're not making films. John Wayne becomes a really America's face in World War II, but he never served in World War II. Mm. Okay, now, yeah. what do I say about that? You know, I talk about it. I, what happened? What does he say? How does he feel about it? How did it affect him later? But I don't say, oh, he's a terrible person because he did this. You right, know, you, you, right. look, you try to look at a life in balance, you know, and, 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 and reach some conclusions. And if you go in and think that you're dealing with a saint, a person that never made a choice that you may think is suspect, uh, you know, I'm old enough to look at my own life and know that that's not true. <laughs> Well, I think we all have, um, I think as you get older, um, I remember as a, as a child and you have people that you idolize and then as you get older, you hear things and you're like, well, hmm, maybe that person wasn't, uh, didn't belong on the pedestal that I put him on. And then as you get, at least for me, um, as you go through life, you start to realize, yeah, that's everybody. Everybody's got some things in their life that, uh, you know, or make them human. And uh, it's funny because my I have a young son. He's going into second grade, and he, he's really into these books. Um, they're, and they're history books. It's who was Babe Ruth, you know, who was, you know, um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. And we read the Babe Ruth book together one night before he's going to bed. And these books are great because they don't um, they don't skew anything. Everything's very um, accurate and... They got into the fact that, hey, Babe liked to drink a lot of beer and eat a lot of hot dogs and stepped out on his wife, and, and they, they word it a little more delicately. But uh, he's looking at me like, so Babe Ruth drank a lot of beer and got drunk? And, and I said, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and how do you handle that with a – but, yeah, I, I, but that's the way um, I think it should be. I think history should be taught with 
the whole story and not just bits and pieces that we want to make people feel better of. And uh, that that's and it, when when you talked about John Wayne, it's funny that you went back to him because that was who I was thinking about as you were talking about him was, you know, I wonder if if the pre, some of the preconceived notions you have on things are altered when you start to dig in and do your research. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, you know, it, we're, it's human beings make mistakes. Human beings make choices. You know, you make choices. Sometimes they're bad choices, and, 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 and sometimes you make choices based on, you know, here's John Wayne. If you look at him, this is a guy that has, for about a decade, he was in bad pictures. He was in deep pictures, okay? He was a struggling actor. Uh, he, had a, he had a great chance early in his career with his first film. It flopped, and then after that, you know, it's questionable whether he has a career at all. And then in, you know, 1939, uh, a film came out, Stagecoach which starts to make him a big star. And, and, and so when World War II breaks out, he's not a huge star yet. You know, he's on the cusp. He's been in some good films, but his attitude is, you know, if I go into the service and I don't make a film for four or five years, okay, I'm going to get out. I'm going to be older. You know, he's, he's, he's getting, starting to get up there a little bit for a leading man because most leading men were, were really young at that time. And, you know, I'm going to come back from the war and there's going to be all these young men from the coming back from the war, you know, a decade younger than me. And my career is going to be over. So it's like, okay, I've got a chance to make a film. Okay, I'll make this film. I'll get a deferment for this year. I'll make these two films and three films. And then, you know, okay, well, I'll get another deferment. I'll make a few films. And it's not like he, he knew what was going to happen. It sort of went one thing to it. And he could see his career taking off. And, you know, what do you do? You get a chance to make a big career, but you're not serving in the military. I think, you know, if John Wayne had been John Wayne that we know of when the war broke out, Mm -hmm. I think there's no question he would have enlisted because he wouldn't have been put. These actors, they weren't fighting. Most of them, some of them did. You know, Jimmy Stewart flew missions and things. But most of the actors, Clark Gable was never in harm's way. I mean, right. you know, he wore a uniform. He was in the service. He visited service servicemen. You know, he, he put on, you know, musicians put on performances. You know, John Wayne wouldn't have, you know, the actors didn't have to worry mostly about getting killed in World War II, the, the, most, the most famous leading men. Uh, but their careers were put on hold. And, you know, John Wayne didn't put his career on hold. Was it a mistake? Well, well maybe. Well, that's the same thing that happened to athletes. You know, yeah. Guys like Bob Feller or Ted Williams or people like that who lost, you know, several years to their career. And, you know, and normally it was at the, uh, at the uh, height of their career. And, you know, these guys, I mean, like Feller, I mean, he lost, I don't know how many more no-hitters he could have thrown or how many more one-hitters he could have thrown, but he would have had a lot more if he didn't have to serve in the Army. Yeah, and those are short careers. I mean, you know, an actor's career can be can be longer. Right. And, you know, an athlete's career is, is measured in, uh, you know, it's not measured in decades usually. It's measured in years. And, and, you know, you mentioned Ted Williams. It happened to him twice. 
in World War II and Korea. Yeah, his right. career was interrupted, you know, to, 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 to fight. He didn't go overseas in World War II, but he did fight. He flew combat missions uh, in Korea. Yeah, when you look at some of Ted Williams' numbers, um, which are eye-popping already, and then you factor in what could have happened if he would, would not have been overseas, it, they become staggering. Uh, just some amazing, hit, amazing years. And as Larry referenced, in the prime of his career. Um, he hit 406 in 1941, okay? I yeah, mean, right. You yeah. talk about the prime of your career. He hit 406. Joe DiMaggio hitting 56 games in, in, in 1941. Uh, and, you know, Joe DiMaggio just was, I mean, he hated the idea that he, that it took him away from baseball. Now, of course, what did he do in World War II? He was over in Hawaii and he played exhibition baseball games and he played for, you know, a unit team. Uh, but, you know, he was out of the major leagues. You know, what kind of records would those guys have, have had? How many hits would have DiMaggio had? Sure. Uh, you know, and, you know, they all knew that they, athletes know that their careers are, are fragile things and they can be over fast. I mean, how many guys coming up would have made, you know, who were in the minors, but just on the verge of making the majors never got a chance, Yeah, you know, right. four years later, they're not going to make the majors. Right. You know, it's, it's like John Wayne, uh, you know, four years later, John Wayne would not have made become John Wayne as uh, the John Wayne we know today. If, 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 if he hadn't, if, stayed home in world war ii well one of the things uh i also wanted to bring up is as you do research for these books and become kind of a quote-unquote expert on certain topics or individuals um tv and television comes calling and uh, and asks for your input um and i know you've been involved in uh consultation and and been on camera for a variety of of uh things on the History Channel, ESPN, um, a variety of networks. Um, let me ask you about that. Is Do you enjoy that part? And then has there, I guess the one question I was thinking of as I was kind of researching this was, have you, be, because you're so the so-called expert um, of that person or topic, um, do you ever see it portrayed differently than you would like to in, in terms of like you don't have any editorial control um, have you ever been frustrated by maybe how the product turns out? Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've done a lot of things like that and I've worked with some fantastic producers and directors and, and, and I've usually been amazed at how good of a job they did. And, you know, thinking, man, this that's better than I thought it was going to be. It's a, you know, they've really been able to work this thing. I mean, they're good at what they do, you know, these guys. And, and the people that, that make documentaries, they care about what they do. They really do a good job. Uh, I've had sometimes where I've had interviews with reporters who, who do the same thing where they change, uh, where they then use you in a, uh, an article they're writing. And, and they kind of misrepresent. You know, a couple yeah. times I've had some misrepresentations. One time, and so, sometimes they don't mean to do it. Uh, I was interviewed by one person. I had a book that came out called um, uh, Where the Domino Fell, which was about Vietnam. And the person asked me, you know, why did I write the book? And and I said, you know, for my generation, you know, and I, I, I went into college in 1969, so I was a Vietnam generation. I said, for my generation, Vietnam was 
the most important things in our life, you know, in, in the life of the generations. How we view ourselves is through, through, particularly at that time, through the lens of the Vietnam generation. And, and, and the article came out and said, Vietnam was the most important event in Randy Roberts's life. And I'm thinking, no, I never said that. I, you know, I, I didn't serve, in, I wasn't in Vietnam. I, you know, I wasn't scarred by Vietnam. But, I, you know, it was the most important event of my generation. And so to, to personalize it and say in my life, it, 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 made, it bothered me. I thought, sure. oh, my God, I never said that. Or, you know, how are people going to think? You know, because, you know, I had people from my class that went to Vietnam, that died in Vietnam, and, you know. So, anyway, if, no, I, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, absolutely, and that's kind of, I mean, I, you know, you're the, so to speak, you've done the, the research, you've been in the trenches, so to speak, and, you know, gathering this information, and then, you know, sometimes you present the information, and um, obviously they're, it's at their discretion which way, which, you know, what way they go with it, but... Uh, you know, you've done so many of those things that that's why I was kind of curious, um, you know, what, uh, if there's, if there was any, you know, incidences like that. Um, I've done one film too. Yeah. Now talk about that a little bit. Cause I was going to get into that. Rocky six. I think it was Rocky six was Rocky six. Yeah. He comes back and he fights somebody. So I think it was Rocky six, um, which I, I view as the best Rocky of all time. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, <laughs> now, but I, I, I I was covering a fight uh, in Vegas at uh, Mandalay Bay, I believe. And um, Sylvester Stallone was making this picture. And so he had come and, you know, to, to get atmospheric shots of crowd scenes, that kind of stuff, right. you know, so that, that he could blend into the Rocky picture. And, and he, he was, another thing he was given permission to do is after the weigh-in ceremony for the fight that I was covering, you know, he said, can, can the people that go to the weigh-in, can they stay? And, you know, if they want to, and, and I'll change the set. I'll, you know, I'll change the stage a little bit and I'll put my guys up there and, you know, and reenact our weigh-in ceremony. Okay. And so, and he, and he, he picked a, a few people were picked reporters to be reporters in the film. Okay. To ask questions to the fighters are there on the stage, but there were no mic setups, So I knew the questions weren't going to be on the, you know, they, they were not going to be on the film, but, uh, I was a reporter with, you know, raising my hand to ask a question and getting up at the end. I'm sitting next to a guy named Bert Randolph sugar. I don't know. if Oh I, yeah. I know. Bert, yeah, Bert sugar is a okay. famous boxing historian and, and writer, right. sports he's, no, writer. he's no longer with us, but right. Bert, Bert was a, Bert was one of the, he was a character, Larry, you would have loved Bert. You talk about a guy who could spin some stories and, uh, you know, he could sit drinking scotch, watered down scotch and tell stories for hours. But anyway, when we got up, uh, you know, I kind of put my arm around Bert. I was sitting next to him and sort of shook my head. You know, I was trying to think of, you know, what could end up. So they, they used me a couple of times in the movie. I mean, they cut to me one time. It lasted maybe a second and another time, two seconds. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> not very long. And, and uh, I told my daughters when they saw it, I said, could you tell I was acting? They said, what? And I said, I got to be good if you can't tell I'm acting, you know, <laughs> putting a hand on a guy's shoulder. But it was, it was, it was fun. I got a chance to deal with it, Sylvester Stallone a little bit and actually even help him. A friend of mine who was a guy named Tom Hauser, who's a really great boxing writer, gave me a call and said, hey, Sylvester's down in the ring and they're setting up how he's going to set up some scenes 
the boxing actions with the cameraman and they, we, you know, they need somebody else down here. So I got a chance to go down with Sylvester Stallone and Tom Hauser and maybe a couple other, you know, his, his cameraman and maybe a director. I don't know. I forget. There were just very few of us. And I got a chance to meet uh, Stallone and deal with him and see how he dealt with people. And, and I was really impressed. He was, uh, you know, anytime I hear anything bad about Sylvester Stallone, I said, you know, he treated extras really well. He treated the people really well. Uh, that says a lot about a person, I think, how they treat the people that, uh, you know, aren't necessarily the, the stars of a certain production or, or organization. Um, You're you... absolutely right. Now, I've been on some sets and watched how some some other stars treated people, and I won't go into their names, but, and they treated them abysmally. And so it does say something. Yeah. So you've done a lot of boxing books um, or on boxers and fighters. Um what what's the what's the uh, the appeal there? There there obviously must be some kind of a uh, something that's pulled you into those that particular sport. You know, it, some people talked about you know. Oftentimes, you, your love of sports goes back, and I don't know if it's with you guys or not, but it goes back to your fathers. You know, and going to baseball games with your fathers or sporting events. You know, I started really young. Watching boxing, my father liked boxing, and mm. you know we watched. Which fights. was very popular then. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about going back now to the. You know, my father was watching him in the nineteen fifties when boxing was on TV all the time, right. and so you know, when, as I was growing up, I would watch a fight of the week. You know, the Friday night fights and then the Saturday night fights with my father, and and I became kind of interested in boxing. I you know I thought I thought that was a really fascinating sport, and it's you know I knew all the fighters and. I studied boxing and I knew the boxing statistics like as a kid, like people know baseball statistics. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was something I just really knew. And so when you go to write, I, you know, I'm going to write my first book, which is my dissertation became my first book. You know, what do I really know? You know, I, I, I knew that world. I, I, you know, I knew, you know, not only the fighters, but the managers, the trainers, the, you know, I mean, I was, I was sort of familiar with that world. I knew how, I knew how it functioned. And, you know, they say, write about something you, you know about. Right. right. Uh, and so I, that's what I ended up doing. That's cool. I was very curious about that because when you go through all of your books, that's, uh, that's something that kind of jumps out. Um, and, uh, all very and heavyweight champions too. Yeah. Uh, really, you know, Eldridge Cleaver, who was a, a you know a black radical in the 1960s, wrote a book called Soul Nice, and he said something in the book. There was a line that went, you know, uh, the heavyweight or the boxing is the two-fisted testing ground of masculinity in America, and the heavyweight champion as a symbol is the real Mister America. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. You know, is that true? The heavyweight champion are they? the real Mr. America. And I saw something in boxing that, that symbolized that, you know, the boxers somehow incorporated the, the attitudes of, a, of America at a particular time. Now, I also grew up in the time of Muhammad Ali. Right. And I, you know, you could see that impact that Ali had on the American society. And, you know, that he was kind of Mr. America for all it's good and all it's bad. And, you know, this, this kind of polarizing figure. And so, you know, to me, you looked at Ali and I said, yeah, boxing's important. This guy's important. You know, I, I mean, he's more important than politicians. Yeah, he. Yeah, he, well, well, the um, thing about Ali is, was pretty much like Elvis Presley was to me. 
I never liked Elvis Presley till I saw him uh, late in his career live, and I saw the show that he put on. It was at Southern Illinois University, um, and it's the first time I saw him, and first time I was ever interested in doing anything about him, because I worked at a radio station. They wanted him covered, and his performance was remarkable. I mean, just remarkable. You you walked out of that place and you're th- you're shaking your head and think, boy, how come I missed 20 years of this? I mean, this is this is really wild. And the, and that's pretty much the way the uh, you know boxers were treated the same way. You Ali, you know, I never could understand the commotion over him, but if you watched him fight, you knew he was good. There's no question about that. But I always thought that. Maybe ah, he's overworked a little bit, but you know, in the long run and before it was all over, you really could appreciate it. And, oh, um, go ahead. No question about it. Yeah, he's a he's another one. My uh, my son's read that history book on him and was able to visit the Muhammad Ali Museum down in Louisville when we played down there in the uh, Sweet Sixteen and in the deep. Elite Eight. Yeah, yeah. and just uh, that's a great museum. That's a, that's a fantastic museum. Yeah, and just I mean, such a such a really amazing person because, as you said, Randy, he not only for the stuff he did in the ring, but then all of his social implications and uh, his impact on society, and and you know everything from the Supreme Court case to um, the Vietnam War, all kinds of things that he touched. You know, a lot of different big moments in American history. So. Yeah, I, 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 I wrote a number of, I've written a number of things on Ali, including a book with a guy named Johnny Smith we wrote called uh, Blood Brothers on his, Ali's relationship with Malcolm X. And, uh, and I've met Ali a number of, you know, about three times in my life at different times. And one time I was giving a talk. Somebody formed a, a symposium of historians, okay? So they invited, I don't know, maybe seven or eight or six, whatever, historians to Miami of Ohio to give talks on different aspects of Muhammad Ali's life and career and meaning and that, you know, it's just an academic type of thing. It's historians, you know, so it's all historians, all academic. And uh, Ali showed up to it and he came with Howard Bingham, who was his kind of his right hand man who took pictures of him. I don't know if you, if you know, Ali yeah. you probably ran into yeah. Howard Bingham. Wow. Um, and, and Ali would, you know, he was so impressive. I mean, it was, he was into Parkinson. I mean, you know, he wasn't really very articulate. He didn't move very well. I mean, and, but he would, afterwards, people would come up after a session and he would sign autographs. And if there were a hundred people there, he would sign 100 autographs. He would, he was patient. And I mean, you watched him with Parkinson sign those autographs and it was hard for him to do it and it took a while and he would just stand there and 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 there was a time where he was going back to the after a lunch break and a limo was taking him back and he's with a couple people in a limo and and he was driving down this he wasn't driving but the chauffeur was driving down the street and and a young african-american kid kind of looked in and then did a double take a quick double take because he saw muhammad ali <laughs> and, and ali was late for the con you know the, he had to get there because the conference was getting ready started it was it was waiting for him and ali said you know said stop the car okay and he stopped the car and he got out and he talked with the kid 
uh, you know, here's this guy, you know, he's, of course, Allie didn't care about time at all. He, he went <laughs> right, time. right. And, uh, and, but, you know, he stops the car and he talks to the kid. I mean, you know, the, an act of generosity. And it's a, after the whole thing was over, there was a, uh, there was a cocktail party. It was filled with ac- a couple of academics talking about academic stuff. And, and Allie was standing in the corner and he couldn't talk for me. He was there and, you know, and I saw me just sort of look out of place, alone. You know, he he had lost that verbal ability, and and Allie loves magic, loved magic, and and I knew a couple card tricks. We all know a couple card tricks, right? And so I right. said to the host, I said, "Do you have a pack of cards?" And the host said, "Yeah, he's given to me." I said, "Hey, champ, come on over here." And I I did a card trick. He looked at me. And then he took the card pack. And he did a card trick, you know, because he, he has he has a couple mag- he has some magic routine he did. Then I took it and I did a card trick. Maybe we each did two, and people were cheering for Allie and booing me. And then at the end, <laughs> Allie kind of points a finger at me, and his finger's shaking, and he says, "You're not as you know." He, a line that he used a million times with a million people. But he said, "You're not as dumb as you look." In, in that <laughs> Allie accent, <laughs> it was. In effect, I thought, "Oh, this is fantastic! It's made my life." Yeah, Allie what a thrill! As dumb as I look. What a uh, thrill! Absolutely. Yeah, but but he was personally. I mean, he he could be so mean to a person like Joe Frazier, or sometimes the people he fought, and he 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 was so insulting. But on a personal level, he was such a kind, decent, wonderful individual. I mean, you know, who cared truly about people. Right. Yep. Well, we could talk for hours about all this stuff. Uh, Larry and I love this 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 stuff, and I hope uh, hope our listeners have enjoyed all this stuff. Um, all this kind of walks down different avenues of history with you, Randy, and. One thing we always do here when we wrap up our uh, our podcast is we have a final four questions that we ask everybody, and uh, kind of some off the uh, beaten path topics, and uh, we want to get to those with you right now. And the first question of the final four is, what is your go-to music of choice? Oh, that's easy. Uh, I, you know, I, on my on my radio, car radio, Sirius Sinatra. I'm, I'm a okay uh, now. Unlike Larry, I was Elvis from the very beginning because I was born January 8th, which was Elvis's birthday, and I love Elvis. And uh, but you know Sinatra and this, uh, the American Songbook and that that era, that World War II 1950s or 1960s era. Now I love the Beatles and I love 1960 music. It's the soundtrack of my life, but. Yeah, it's well, Sinatra. I'm a big Sinatra fan myself, and our our previous podcast we had uh, Terry Dissinger on, and his uh, go-to music of choice was Elvis. So, a lot of Elvis, uh, a lot of Elvis topics here over the last couple of podcasts. So, can't go wrong with um, with Sinatra. And you I'm, have Sinatra, Elvis, and the Beatles, man. You, yeah. you know, you don't need anybody. Else. <laughs> no doubt about it. No doubt about it. There's that um, one of the Sinatra albums I have when he's at the Sands. And just all the dialogue in between songs as well is fantastic. And now, yeah. you know, now the way music is now where you stream everything and you get just clips of things and the kind of the album concept is lost a lot of times. If you get a chance to go back and listen to that Live at the Sands album and let it play through and let it go through the, the banter between songs and you could just picture Frank up on stage with a, you know, Jack Daniels in his hand and 
cigarette and telling the stories in between the songs that he sings that is that is uh, him and his best in my opinion so oh yeah or another one if i can just say what is a what's the name of it september of my years where it's a concept album and it's about it's about being older you know it's Uh you know it has you know when i was when i was 17 on it and you know don't wait too long and you know this is all i ask and you know when the wind was green i mean it it has all these songs about being in the autumn of your life and it's uh god it tears at you (laughs) yeah but but i agree i i i i have that fans one uh and, and and they're great but i love his concept albums too that's outstanding so this next question is, um, I don't think we've ever really asked to someone who's authored 30 books. So um, without your, and I, you wouldn't say this anyway, but what is your favorite book or maybe a good book that you've read recently? God, that's a tough question to ask an academic. Right. You know, <laughs> I, you know I, a book that I read and I've reread it a number of times that I read when I was very young that had the impact on me where it took me to a different place and a different time. So my father always told me, who was a big reader, and my father always said, you know, a book will take you someplace and do things for you. It'll just take you to, you know, you, you become part of it. You know, it was not a great book, though. It was a very popular book. It was called The Lost Horizon uh, by James Hilton. And it's about, you know, Shangri-La. And it's, you know, I love that book. Hmm. And a, a sports book that I read, you know, not too long ago, not that many years ago, Sea Biscuit, which I liked. I thought right. it was a really good book. Uh, but those are two that come to my mind. Uh, you know, there's so many other well, yeah, ones. Yeah, very that, tough question for a guy like you. That, that's a hard question, but you can't go wrong with either of those books. Now, do you ever read... Um... Do you ever read any fiction? And and then kind of a I wanted to, I meant to ask you this earlier, but have have you ever um, thought of writing any fiction? I am writing some fiction right now. I won't go into it, okay. but yeah, I, I I do. I read fiction. I I you know I was a dual major. I was kind of a history and literature major, and I ended up going the history way rather than the literature way. But um, but but I mean, yeah, I, I read novels. Uh, you know, you should do a lot, uh, some with poetry re- in terms of reading it, type of things and talking about it. Uh, but, but yeah, I love literature. Well, that's perfect. When you're, um, uh, when that book is done, we'll have to have you back on and we can, we can talk about that. Uh, question. Yeah, and Purdue basketball. There, yeah, I know. And that, you, you know, that's, I'll be curious to get when we get our feedback on this, because normally, you know, we're talking Purdue basketball the whole time and we've, we've deviated today. But yeah. but Larry and I, I think I I don't want to speak for you, Larry, but I think it's been. I mean, this is awesome for us. I mean, we this is, and really, it's just about Larry and I. We we could care less about everybody else, right, Larry? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I should I should mention that you know I I also train PhD students, and one of my you know which of course is what professors do. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my most distinguished PhD students is Carson Cunningham. Absolutely, who is, is, who is, has a uh, has had a fant- is into a fantastic career. Uh, now he's down in San Antonio at Sacred Word, and he's going to turn that program around. And you know, he, he, you talk about a great guy and a great family. Oh my God! Yeah, we had uh, him he on. And his wife Christy. Yeah, we had him on the podcast a couple years ago and had just a, a great talk with him. Um, had a lot of fun with it. 
and we keep in contact with him quite regularly. And in fact, I was just texting with him the other day. He just hired one of our former players, Ryan Smith, as an assistant yep. coach. And yep. um, yeah, Carson. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And and Carson's are uh, very much connected to us, and we're always uh, we're always talking to him. He's one of one of our favorite uh, one of the favorite podcasts we've ever done that uh, that we've had on here. He was he was great. Talked about a lot of cool things. You know, I know I, I know the coach loves loves uh, Carson, but when Carson was here, I, I I don't think the coach really knew how to work how to take <laughs> Carson. I, I, yeah. you know, I, it probably perplexed him. He was probably at once the best kid, one of the best kids he ever had, and you know, he probably couldn't understand the way the way uh, Carson rolled. But, but you know, there's, you, there's a few that ran through there that. Uh, Gene didn't have a clue about, but uh... <laughs> I, I, I think I think that's true. You know, I'll, I'll say this. I, I, I was just thinking the other day, and actually, I was talking to Carson. Um, this is only a couple days ago, and we were talking about coach, and and I said, you know, one of the legacies that coach has had is you take a look at his coaching tree. Uh, some of the people that he started out as, and I was comparing him to Bobby Knight. You know, you would think Bobby Knight is, you know, the great coach that knows more about basketball. And I'm not going to knock Bobby Knight here, but his coaching tree isn't like, you know, Gene's. I mean, you take a look at who does Gene have, and right. you know, Carson. Carson is out there coaching, and uh, and Quanzo Martin, and you know, and and all the other coaches or assistant coaches that he had here that have gone on to really sterling careers, you know, Matt Painter, of course, and, you know, and, and you could go on, but pretty impressive. And they're all great guys, which says, I think a great, a lot of about coach Katie. Yeah. You're, 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 you're exactly right. And, and that's, I think the one thing that, uh, those guys have all won a lot of games and have been successful, but yeah, as you said, um, Great guys as well, and all guys that. Oh, Bruce Weber! Yeah, you know yeah. they get a better class actor yeah. than Bruce Weber. And I mean, guys you know, that that are still very tight with uh, with us and the program, and you know, guys that we keep in contact with regularly. And I think that that's uh, that's not as common as people would think. I know we spend a lot of time kind of bragging on the Purdue basketball family, um, and I, I I always say this: I say a lot of programs want to talk the talk, but very few of them actually walk the walk, and I. And I really believe that we do. And, and uh, one just needs to kind of take a look. If you looked at Coach Painter's like text messages, uh, they're just scattered with coaches and players that all, you know, Purdue guys. And uh, it's a pretty close-knit fraternity and uh, one that we're, we're really proud of. And, and, uh, and I think it's one of the reasons why our culture, our current culture with our players is so good because they know when they come into a program like this that they're going to be kind of part of a brotherhood for the rest of their lives. So. Yeah, you know, Matt is, you know, I look at him and it's like, you talk about a class act. When he loses a game, it's never, you know, we lost a game because we lost it, okay, because we didn't make enough shots. You know, right. if there's a terrible call that costs us a game, he will never say anything about that call. You know, it's just we lost the game, period. Right. You know, yeah, if we made enough points, we would have won. Yeah. It. yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're great guys. You know, he might, and you know, Robbie Hummel is going to do great. And Brian Cardinal, and uh, wow. And he might you bring know, it up. What a group! He might bring up those calls on the bus when Larry and I and him are eating our pizzas together. But uh, but for the most part, that's not going to be uh, anything he brings up in a press conference for sure. Right, exactly. Uh, okay, question three here on the final four: If you could wave a wand and do any other profession, what would that be? 
you know, I love the profession that I'm in. Uh, well, I told I told Larry yeah, being be- a being a being a, and I'm not a golfer, but I'm thinking that looks like a pretty cold gig. <laughs> <laughs> if you could be a you know on the PGA tour, uh, but um, yeah, I I love what I do. Yeah, I, I pretty much love what I do. Well, the professional that, golfer. That might be if you have you done any books uh, about golf? No, I haven't. I, I haven't. I'd be interested in just what you said about. Well, I think that would like really be cool. It'd be it would really be interesting to know exactly what a pro golfer goes through in a lifetime of of doing that because it it can't be easy. No, you're on the road a lot. It's a long career too. I'm like a you know football player, or what is it? A little over three years average football player's career in pros. Uh, you know, even basketball. A golfer has a long career. You're on the road a lot. Um, we only see the, you know, we think of the top guys, but the, you know, it's it's a struggle to get on the tour. There's an enormous amount of pressure. I guess if you're a Jack Nicklaus, it, it must seem pretty good, or maybe a Rory uh, McIlroy, but uh, it, it it would be a hard life. I wouldn't want to be on the road that much. Well, that me either. and that the answer your answer there is that's the most popular um, answer to that question. So we've done this is the fifty sixth episode we've done. We've asked these questions of all of our guests, and I I bet that that answer's probably come up um, half a dozen at least half a dozen times. Wow! Uh, and far and away, that's the most popular answer is they would like to uh, be a professional golfer. So. <laughs> it looks cool. Yeah, right, right. These beautiful well, looks cool. Looks yeah, cool. I mean, I think there's a lot of money in it. Well, there is for the top ones, but you know, I watch and they're playing at Pebble Beach. I'm thinking, man, yeah, that's beautiful. And I, <laughs> I played golf. I, I'm not a golfer, but uh, you know, I've played overseas and I've played in Ireland and I've walked those courses. And it's just, it's there's a there's a magic to it that's that's sort of interesting. And I, you know, I grew up playing tennis, and a tennis court's a tennis court. Uh, but a golf course, they're all different, and th- that variability seems nice to me. Yeah, I've been doing I've been to enough uh, tournaments that I, I've caught myself looking at divots and thinking, "Man, that's cool! Look at yeah. that divot! You know, yeah. look at that divot! Look at and look at the what he left there on the ground, and nobody's fixed that yet, and that's." Like really neat, and these guys, they never have to worry about it. Hit their ball and walk on. Yeah. yeah, they just walk on. And you know, you see a person like at that level hit a golf ball, and the flight of the ball is is so it's like art. Right. It's so beautiful. I mean, the sound of it, the you know, the yep. arc of that ball heading towards it, and and it's like it's just got eyes for the pin, and you wonder about the physics of it. How that. How does it work that you can hit something that hits, you know, sometimes virtually on the cup? It's just, you know, there's just a magic about the sport, I think. Well, and I've always said with golf is the one thing that I think one of the reasons it's so appealing, because let's face it, when you're, when you're looking in the weeds for your ball um, or you, you know, you duff a chip shot, you know, everybody is like, why am I out here? What am I doing? (laughs) But it's the one sport where, for at least one shot during your round, you can be the best in the world. Like if you if you hit a thirty foot putt, well, 
you know, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, they're not going to do any better than that. The best they can do is hit that 30 foot putt. But as That's long, right. you know, but as but some of us, if you play the game of basketball, you may not ever be able to dunk the ball. You're never be able to go get to dribble around a seven footer and score on him. Um, but in golf, you can be just like the best for at least one shot. So. Yep, and usually that shot comes on the 18th hole that will bring you back. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly right. That's true. <laughs> okay, our last question here on the Final Four with Randy Roberts. Randy, what is uh, one fact that either no one or not very many people know about you? He's rich. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I was, I was going, I'm married to a wonderful woman, Uh I, I was going to go, I've been said it that I, you know, it was my acting career, my, my feature film that I was in. Uh, you know, that, I guess that's what I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things that I hope they don't know about me. But, uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff you wanted, wanted to stay hidden, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love what I do. I, you know, I don't think I could, you know, when I was a kid, okay, if I'm going to be perfectly honest here, uh, I didn't like getting up to go to school in the morning. <laughs> you know, as a kid, I really liked to, to, to sleep in. And, uh, and, and I remember when I was in college as an undergraduate, and I started, you know, I, I had an aptitude for history, and I did pretty well on it, in it. And I started to think, okay, now I'm in college. What am I going? I knew I was going to have to get a job at some point in my life. And and the prospect of getting a job and having to show up at you know 7:30 or 8 o'clock every morning didn't appeal to me because I knew within a week I'd be late, and within two weeks I'd be fired. So uh, you know, what am I? What am I, What is a person like me going to do for a livelihood? And I and I had my history, and I talked to a person, uh, and I was thinking about. Maybe this is, would be, I'd like to do something like this. So I talked to a professor, and I said, you know, how does, it, how does this work? What's the mechanics? I, you know, your teaching schedule and everything like that. What, what's, how does this work? He said, well, you know, some people like teaching in the morning, so they teach in the morning. And some people like teaching in the afternoon, so they schedule their courses in the afternoon. And I said, wait a second, wait a second. You're saying a person could <laughs> schedule all of their classes in the afternoon? And I said, yeah, if they wanted to do that, they could do that. And I walked out of that office and I said to myself, I know what job I'm going to do. <laughs> this is, Bingo. This is, the job. I, this is the job for me. It was made for that's awesome. Well, and I've I've loved every year of it. Well, I got to say that uh, we, Larry and I, have really enjoyed this last hour. Um, and being a Purdue guy myself, and and Larry's a Purdue guy and been here a long time. Um, we're we're great. We're grateful that you made your career here at Purdue. And uh, you know, it's it's great that you're uh, on campus and have t- affected so many students that have come through. And just, uh, I think anytime, you know, Purdue guys like yourself can be out there and uh, it's always kind of pretty, pretty cool to know that uh, those kind of guys are, are right here on our campus and right here in West Lafayette. So uh, really appreciate you taking time to join us today, Randy. Uh, Elliot, thank you. Larry Legend, thank you. And uh, let's do it again and talk about basketball next time. Absolutely. Well, he's, uh, Randy's uh, always been one of our favorites, uh, both with uh, Elliot and I discussing it, we, we talk about history all the time. And of course, the person that we turn to is Randy Roberts, one of our own. So it's, it's great hearing from you and 
nice to have this interview. It's very interesting, by the way. Oh, yeah, well, thank you very much. Very Appreciate interesting. It. And we will definitely do a part two. We'll follow up and we'll uh, hopefully we'll talk about the book you're working on now. And then we'll uh, we'll talk more Purdue basketball. So Sounds well, great. Thanks Sounds again, great. Randy. Appreciate it. That okay. was episode 56 here on the podcast. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And until next time, be curious, be informed, and be well. Thank you.